some of the most instructive psalms in the entire Psalter of Israel are the ones in which the psalmists are confessing their sins. There are probably more, although they may not be classified as penitential psalms, but certainly these seven are usually understood to be those kinds of confession psalms that we should very much pay attention to and see as psalms of penitence. And they are Psalm 6, Psalm 6, Psalm 32, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, Psalm 102, Psalm 130, Psalm 130, and Psalm 143. Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. Please open your Bible to Psalm 38 tonight. Psalm 38. As we look at Psalm 38, I see from my own study three divisions within this Song of David which make up at least for me three critical elements of our ongoing relationship with God, especially as it comes to the unconfessed sin in our lives and what we must do about it. The first is what we might call David's communication. David's communication. Or if we expanded that division or that principle or that section of Psalm 38, we might say it this way, David's communication regarding his sin and how that communication about his sin needs to be a regular part of his prayer life. David's communication regarding his sin needs to be the regular kind or part of our prayer lives. Or maybe if I wanted to make it very, very simple, it would be this. With regard to the sin of our lives, you must first and always pray. You must first and always pray. Now, I mentioned this morning when I sought your attendance tonight regarding Psalm 38 that the superscription says, A Psalm of David for the Memorial Offering. That actually appears in the Hebrew text as verse 1. So we shall treat it as though it is certainly a part of God's Word and therefore inspired. And David is certainly telling us that if this is a part of the memorial offering to the Lord, then he is saying that confessing your sin is a part of the preparation for the sacrifices that you bring to God. That's what an Old Testament worshiper would have understood. 
And because this appears to be a memorial offering or memorial service of offering, David is lamenting the sin of his heart. And the very first thing that he does is that he goes to God in prayer. And you can see that in both verse 1 and you can see it also in the closing of this psalm in verses 21 and 22. And so we'll treat those three verses as one entire section. And that section, of course, as I said, is David's communication. It's his communication to his God, and it is a communication regarding his sin and how his sin needs to be the regular kind of penitent prayer of the believer. He prays to his God first and foremost. He goes right to the Lord and he talks to the Lord. He communicates with the Lord about all of the sin of his heart. And this is what he says. Look at verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And then look at the end of Psalm 38, verses 21 and 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. These are praying words of David. He's going before the Lord. He's lamenting his sin. And he's offering up to the Lord his prayer. And in answering the dilemma of how you confess your sins, every believer ought to be able first and foremost to pray. To pray. That's the first thing you do when you come to confess sin, right? Because your sin is chiefly against whom? It's against God. That's what is said in Psalm 51, right? Another penitential psalm where David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It wasn't that he didn't sin relationally or horizontally with anyone else. He certainly did. And if Psalm 51 or some of these other psalms were uh, to be uh, a reference to sin, uh, the sin of David's life against Bathsheba, uh, he certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He certainly sinned against Uriah, her husband. He, he certainly sinned also against his, his nation as their king because he was their representative. He certainly did sin against others, but chiefly and foremost, he sinned against his God. And so he goes right to God. And that's the very first thing you must do, and that is to pray. And the very first place you must go is to your God. And according to verse 1, in verses 21 and 22, you communicate with God or to God with pleas for the suspension of his rebuke and his anger. That's really what you're praying. Lord, suspend your rebuke and your anger, as well as the suspension, David prays, of the discipline of God's wrath. And those are quite negative, aren't they? Those are quite negative. I mean, he uses there in verse 1 the word anger, the word wrath. He mentions in verses 21 and 22, uh, don't forsake me, help me. These are these are emblematic of God's punishment, especially in verse 1. And even the positives of verses 21 and 22, help me, be near me, don't make distance from me, deliver me. 
are all in the context of the idea of God being distant, far away. Or if He comes to you, He's going to come to you potentially in wrath and anger. And this is a sense, the way Psalm 38 is teaching us, that even though we might have a relationship with God, and certainly David did have a relationship with God, and this was representative of all the Israelites who professed a relationship with God, and even for us as New Covenant believers, in our relationship with God, if we are out of sorts with Him, if we have sinned against Him, then we've created a distance from Him, right? And it's not as though we are being judged by this almighty God of wrath because we haven't already confessed our sins. If you and I are genuine Christians, we've already done that at the cross. We've already been forgiven by that cross and what Jesus did there in order to forgive us our sins. But if we trade on that grace... If we sin against the Lord, even in our personal relationship with Him, we are still going to come up against His fatherly discipline, right? And in a sense, you can say that that's precisely what's going on here. David is saying in verse 1, O Lord, if you're going to rebuke me, don't do it in anger. If you're going to discipline me or correct me or instruct me, please don't do it in your wrath. I'd like for you to come to me not as a judge, but as a father. And that's what we would say, right? Father, I want you to come to me as I confess my sins to you, as I'm praying to you, not as my judge, but as my heavenly father. And you know, this was a ringing theme throughout several passages, even of the Old Testament. Look in your Bibles at Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. In Proverbs chapter 3, we have that famous set of verses in verses 5 and 6. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise, verse 7, in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You see, this is in the context of people dealing with sin, dealing with evil, right? Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. If you turn away from evil from evil. Look at verse 11. Here's this fatherly discipline that I was talking about. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he, what? Loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. You see, when we have Yahweh as our Father, and when we have the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, and when we have the Holy Spirit as our Comforter, when we go to God, we can go to Him as a Son because He's our Father. That is both comforting and foreboding. Comforting because we're not going there to stand before the eternal judge, 
but foreboding in the sense that there's still, there's still a problem in our relationship. And what is that problem? My sin. My sin. Look at Job 5.17. Job 5.17. It's to the left of the book of Psalms. And in Job chapter 5, we read something very interesting. Now this, of course, is coming out of the counsel of Eliphaz toward Job, but even though they weren't spiffy counselors, they still did say some things that were true, and here's one of them. Look at Job 5, verse 17. Eliphaz says, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Now, even though Eliphaz wrongly targeted Job with that kind of advice, the principle of that verse is still true, right? Don't despise the discipline of the Almighty. And what I see here in what David is doing is he's actually not running away from God. Through his prayers, he's actually running to God. Therefore, he's not despising the discipline of the Lord. Turn over to Psalm 94. Psalm 94. You can see in several of these places where I'm cross-referencing this idea of the goodness and the necessity of God's discipline. Look at Psalm 94, beginning in verse 12. After 11 verses of the psalmist asking whether or not God is going to visit vengeance upon unbelievers, upon the ungodly, he says in verse 12, does the psalmist, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked, for the Lord will not forsake his people, he will not abandon his heritage, That's a reference to Israel. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. The one verse I want you to key in on, verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from days of trouble. Discipline is a good thing. Oh, it hurts. It hurts badly. But it is a good thing. In fact, that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119.67, it was good for me that I was afflicted so that I may learn thy statutes. And verse 75, verse 75 of Psalm 119, we should probably turn there because Psalm 119, if you know it well, has a number of passages. We'll just look at two of them, but Psalm 119 verse 67, I just quoted it for you. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And what I just quoted, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness? Yes, in faithfulness. The Lord is faithful to afflict us with His discipline so that we might learn what true faithfulness is. And He afflicts us as we go astray, according to verse 67. And what that affliction does, what that discipline does, 
is that it goads us, prompts us, prods us into keeping God's Word. And so all of those passages, and if you want from one from the New Testament, turn all the way over to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And you know what's key in all of these passages that I've given you thus far? Proverbs 3, Job 5, Psalm 94, Psalm 119, and now Hebrews 12. Is that every one of these has as its essence the idea that God disciplines us and we're talking to Him. We're praying to Him. Every one of those. When God disciplines us, we're in a communication relationship with Him. Lord, I know that in faithfulness you afflicted me. It's prayer. Hebrews 12. It says this in verse 5. And have you forgotten, Hebrews 12, 5, the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then this is right out of Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son in whom he receives. Yes, he chastises us because he loves us. He's he's marshalling all of his corrective instruction so that we might learn the lessons we need to learn. How many of you have children? Okay, most of you have children. Every single child that you have raised in your house when they're young do not understand what I just said. They don't understand the discipline. They don't like the discipline. They want to stay away from the discipline. And what does that inevitably produce? an out-of-control child, a child who is, is thinking and doing nothing but exactly what they want, and because they're a child and they don't have the discernment to determine good or evil, they are going down the path of destruction. That's why the Proverbs repeatedly talk about the rod for the back of a child, that is the backside of a child, that's a euphemistic way of talking about their rear end. It's the idea of taking the rod to the bottom of your child so that they understand the right path and that rod will reinforce it over and over and over again. And if this is happening on that physical level with your children, how much more will it happen on the spiritual level with these children of God? Look at verse 7. Hebrews 12, 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, and then he gives the analogy of what I just told you about humanity's parents, about earthly fathers. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. You see what comes out of the discipline of your children? The use of the rod? Respect. Respect. Not anger. Not loathing. 
And if you discipline them out of love, and of course not out of anger, they will respect you for it. One of the greatest compliments that my eight children, and every one of them have, have said it at some time or another, one of the greatest compliments they've ever given their mom and dad was, thank you for disciplining me. Thank you for giving me the rod of discipline to keep me on the right path. This is exactly what it's saying here. We had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? That's talking about our Heavenly Father. And he's talking about spiritual children. For they, speaking of earthly fathers, verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, referring to our Heavenly Father, He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, and this is ever true, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that the case? In the moment... I hate to discipline my children, and in the moment, they surely hate to receive it. But in a moment, later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, it's a training process. It's a training process. And what our Heavenly Father knows is that on a human level, with a human example, with human beings as parents, as flawed as we are, our kids will ultimately respond in obedience and respect when we are consistently disciplining them as we ought. The Bible says, as seems best to us. That's what I told my kids all the time. They would come to me and they would do something and I would say, now it's time for the rod. You've transgressed the law of God. Uh, you have to be disciplined for it. And they say, why, Daddy, why? And uh, when I couldn't figure out the exact reason, I would say, well, the Bible says, as it seems best to your father. Sometimes that didn't sell it for them. <laughs> But afterward, they understood we have God's law. We may even have some house rules that we need to abide by. And afterwards, even though for the moment it seems not pleasurable at all, but after a while later, it yields its peaceful fruit of righteousness. And it did. And you know that's exactly what David is doing here. He's going to his God and he's saying, I know I have to be disciplined, but I'm asking you, as my father and not as my judge. And that's what you have to do. You have to pray. Praying to your heavenly father in the midst of your need of discipline because of your sin is a righteous path to take after you've been involved in unrighteous behavior. And here's what you do. Cry out to your heavenly father. Cry out for fatherly scourging, but not in anger. Cry out for correction, but not in wrath. Pray and ask God to give you what you need to put you back on the right path. Number two, number two, not just David's communication, not just his prayer to God and an acknowledgement of his heavenly discipline, but also David's condition. Not just David's communication, but David's condition. And what condition does he describe in Psalm 38? Well, here's what he describes in verses 2 to 14. 
unconfessed sin for which he begins to honestly describe taking honest stock of his real condition. That's what he's doing. I mean, I could reduce this principle down to this. Take honest stock of your real condition. Just acknowledge the truth of it. The truth of your condition. And I'm going to go rapidly through this. Look at verses 2 through 14. I want you to listen to the brutal honesty of David as he explains to God what God already knows, but in which David himself needs to take stock. This this principle is so important because in a sense, you and I know that God already knows everything, right? And so this is as much for David as it is for God, right? David's taking stock in the acknowledgement of his own brutal honesty about what his unconfessed sin has brought in his relationship with God. And here it is, verse 2. Verse 2. Here's what he says. Your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. It's as though David is saying, I feel the weight of your powerful, chastening hand upon me. That's what God's fatherly discipline brings. That, that weight of God's chastening hand. Verse 3. Verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones. David says, I, I have nothing but affliction everywhere in my body and there is no shalom. That, that very word there, there is no health in my bones. That's the word shalom. I don't have wholeness. I don't have wellness in my bones because of my sinful condition. You know, when two Hebrew-speaking persons greet one another, shalom, shalom lakim, may it be well with you. May there be wholeness toward you in your life. And David says, I haven't. I haven't any shalom in my life because of my sinful condition. Look at verse 4. He says, I liken my iniquities to a flood of rushing water which has so overtaken me, I'm now overwhelmed by this torrent of my iniquities that I'm drowning all the way to the bottom of the ocean. That's what he says. Uh, For... For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. David's just taking stock of his life. He's just telling it like it is. He's just being transparent. Verse 5. Verse 5. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Now that's graphic, isn't it? He says, because of my folly, my wounds stink I've got in my sin the sense of stinking and festering sores, and it's a condition which is tied directly to my folly. You see, he's not blaming God. He's not saying, but if you would just have dot, 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 but but if you would only do this for me, I wouldn't have been in that position. No, not at all. He prayed to God. He was looking to God, but now he's looking at himself. He's examining himself. Look at verse 6. I am utterly bowed down 
and prostrate, bowed down. I'm distorted. Something's not right. I'm, I'm writhing in spiritual pain. I'm convulsing. This is, this is what my sinful thoughts and actions have brought me, brought me to the lowest position to where I'm mourning over the condition of my sin and what it's brought me. Verse 7, For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. My sides, my loins have filled with burning, uh, no, no soundness. And he kind of repeats himself from verse 3. Uh, there isn't anything sound about me right now. And you know, in those penitential psalms that I gave you, if you read through them, if you read through all of them, just about every one of them, when they talk about the idea of unconfessed sin, usually within that, David moves back and forth from the spiritual to the physical, from the physical to the spiritual. And a lot of times when he's talking about the physical dimensions of his unconfessed sin, he's talking about how it's even affecting affecting him physically. And he may be talking about that here. And he may be talking spiritually. And he may may be talking about both. Look at verse 8. I am feeble and crushed. I groan or I roar because of the tumult of my heart. The moaning in my heart. I'm so weak. I'm so crushed. I'm down to the point where I can do nothing more than groan. Verse 9. He says, you you, you are fully aware of my longing and my sighing without my hiding anything from you. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. You know it. You know what's going on. I'm not going to try to act like everything's okay. I'm going to acknowledge this. I'm going to see my sin for what you see my sin as being. Verse 10, my heart is pounding in my chest. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it's also gone from me. My eyes are failing. My chest is pounding. My strength is draining from me. Verse 11, my friends and companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand afar off. I mean, this, is, this is a person, David himself, king of Israel. David, you shouldn't be so hard on yourself. I mean, go out for a walk. Command someone to do something. You're the king. Maybe um, put up a diversionary tactic somehow so that you can get your mind off this sinful condition of yours. No, David says, back away. Let me deal with this. And then when he looks around, that's exactly what they've done. They backed away. His friends, his companions, and my nearest kin, they stand far off. My friends have all forsaken me, and my nearest relative won't stand by me in my need. Verse 12. My enemies seek to destroy me, and they spend all day plotting my ultimate overthrow. So if it's not just my friends, my my kinsmen, my relatives, my buddies, my companions, it's certainly my enemy 
Verse 12, those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and they meditate. They mull around in their minds all day long how to bring treachery upon my life. This is, this is the condition in which David finds himself. Verse 12, my enemies seek to destroy me. They spend all day plotting my ultimate overthrow. He says, I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. In verse 14, I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. With both my friends and my enemies either abandoning me or plotting to destroy me, I'm deaf, I'm speechless, I'm not even able to defend myself against anyone. It's as though he's at the lowest. And remember, this is all his own doing. And what David is doing as a model for all of us is that he's honestly taking stock of his own condition because of the sin of his life. Not blaming anyone else. No blame shifting going on. He's doing what he has to do in order to be in that blessed, right relationship with Yahweh. He's just acknowledging the truth of his condition. He's communicating with God through prayer, and he's acknowledging the truth of his condition before Yahweh. And then thirdly and finally, let's call this David's confession. This is David's confession of his sin. And this ought to be how you and I approach the Lord with our need for forgiveness. It's, it's only now, my friends, that David is ready to actually say, Please forgive me. Now I know I'm as prone to it as anybody. I want to rush into the Lord's presence and say, Lord, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Forgive me for that sin. I don't want to do that again. Thank you for your forgiveness. Boy, I'm in a right relationship with again, again with the Lord. Isn't it so grand? Isn't it so lovely? Isn't it so wonderful? I think there's some spade work that needs to happen, right? And that's what he's done all the way from... Verse 2 all the way through verse 14. And now he says in verse 15, 16, and 17, I can't speak to those friends and those enemies who are aloof or vengeful toward me, but I can talk to you, Yahweh. I, I wait for your answer of forgiveness. Only please don't let these enemies ultimately and finally rejoice over my calamity and who desire to boast if they presume my foot has slipped into the abyss for the final time. That's what he says. Verse 15, But as for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, Only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I'm ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. And then he says those encouraging but hard words, hard for anybody, hard for me, hard for you, hard for every genuine Christian, but oh so necessary. Verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I confess. I confess I'm sorry for my sin. You say, well, that's, that's being a little tough on yourself. No, it's being honest. And it's being forthright. 
and it's acknowledging the truth of what God already knows and what we should know. That's, that's the New Testament word for confession, homilageo, saying the same thing that God says about my sin. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Lord, please forgive me. Please forgive me. In Psalm 32, just a few psalms back, verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's what we must do. That's that's who we are as believers. We know that our sin is there. We know that it's been judged at the cross. But we also know that we must continue to go before the Lord and confess any known sin without rejecting the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51, verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be vindicated in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face or distance yourself from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And that's what, that's what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 7. They had been sinning against the Lord and they needed to confess it, and they did. And here's what Paul said to them. For even if I made you grieve, 2 Corinthians 7, 8, with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter has grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. And then he explains what godly grief is, repentance. Here's the penitent sinner. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You know what that is. Godly sorrow brings repentance. A worldly grief means that you only are saddened because you were caught. And here he says, For I see what earnestness, 2 Corinthians 7.11, what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. That's, that's what King David is here in Psalm 38. He's, he's earnestly acknowledging his condition. And he's earnestly confessing his sin to the Lord. I, I see in, in you this earnestness that this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. You, you've gone through it all and you've acknowledged it. And the Lord has set you aright again. Because you've done the right thing. 
you communicated to God, you told Him of your condition, and you're now in full mode of confession. Those are the three things that we must do, right? Communicate with God through prayer, acknowledge by taking stock of our condition, and humbly confessing before Him our sin. And so now David's confessed his sin. He sought forgiveness from Yahweh. He still has those foes, according to verses 19 and 20. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. This doesn't mean that God will always and forever take away the consequences. Maybe he brought some level of consequences because of the sin in his life, and he may have to still deal with it in the future. But certainly this is what he's done. He's done the right thing. He's confessed. He's been honest. Which means, my friends, that the point of Psalm 38 is brutal honesty in the reciting of David's sinful condition and the sincere integrity of his confession. Brutal honesty about my condition and the sincere integrity of my confession. And I go to my Heavenly Father, and even if I have God-hating critics and staunch unbelievers who are nipping at my heels, I still do the same three things every time. I go to Him in prayer, I acknowledge my condition, and I seek His forgiveness through confession. That's what I do. Why don't you bow your heads with me? As your heads are bowed, let me ask you a few questions as we close. Are the steps in Psalm 38 what you do when you're caught in sin? Do you communicate with God? Or do you attempt to stay as far away from Him as you can because you know there's the sin of your life and it's causing a a barrier between you and your Lord? Don't go away from Him. Go to Him. Seek Him out. Pray to Him, even tonight. Communicate with God about your needs, even your need for forgiveness. Secondly, be brutally honest about the condition of your life and the sin of your heart. Be honest. Brutally honest if need be. Telling like David does here in verses 2 to 14 of Psalm 38, this is really what's going on. I know that our God already knows, but it'll also bring you clarity. And then thirdly, sincerely confess your sins to Him. And thank Him for His listening ear 
and His forgiving love. If you're a true believer, He'll wrap His arms around you and forgive you in Christ. And you know, if you're not a believer, you've come tonight, do you know that this is the same thing to do when you first come to Him? You come and you talk to Him. You acknowledge to Him that you're you're lost. You've lived your life with no hope and now you've come to the end of yourself and you've taken stock of who you are and your condition before Him and you've acknowledged the truth that you have no relationship with Him. And then you confess. You confess that you've tried to direct your life, you've tried to lead your life, you've tried to live your life as you well please, and it has gotten you nothing but heartache and misery. Confess to Him such truth and ask Him for sincere forgiveness through what Jesus Christ did on the cross to save sinners like you and like me. Father, if there are those believers here tonight who are flirting with sin, any kind of sin, big or small, a little or many, then allow them to come and communicate with you, acknowledge their condition, and confess their sins. Thank you for allowing us some time to do that very thing. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are where you are comfortable, you may want to take a seat somewhere else to be by yourself. Take one of these psalms. The seven that I mentioned to you, take one of those or a couple of them. Read through them. Take 15 minutes or so. I'll close us in prayer. And in that 15 minutes of time, just go before Him. Communicate. Take stock of your condition and confess. Do that now.